There is hope for us yet We are young, we are I am Holly Whitaker. And I am Laura McCowan. And this is Home Podcast. Hola. Hey. Hi. Hi. Hello. How? You're all bundled up over there? It's freezing fucking cold in San Francisco. It's not supposed to be this cold. And I can't get warm. That's the difference between East Coast and West Coast. West Coast has, or at least Bay Area, has this damp, Chilling, penetrating yeah. cold that never leaves. It just hangs. Yeah. And so, yeah. I haven't experienced it. Um, it's not pleasant. Meanwhile, I'm in a tank top in my closet. But <laughs> I'm, that is no I'm in, my, <laughs> in my apartment. I'm wearing two sweaters. I have my... So, yeah, anyway, I have a scarf on and a beanie on, and I'm freezing. Um, well, we are doing, we are, um, have sun. Wait, you don't want to talk about the weather more? Well, we, I, sure. <laughs> Why do we always talk about the weather? It's like I'm the like, most well. boring thing in the world. Can we stop it? Yes. Uh, how's the weather there? Weather oh, God. Are you cold? I'm cold. Isn't that interesting? All right, keep going. Now that everyone's gone. (laughs) So we have what I think is my favorite podcast to do. Yeah, mine too. It was so exciting and just such a good conversation. Surprising um, to me. Not because I just didn't expect it. I expect it to be good, um, but it was so good and... Well, you know what? It was also because you and I, we had this really heated discussion before we got on the phone with her. Yeah. And it really, I think for me, it got me really fired up before we actually even got on the call with her. And then, yeah, it was just, it was, it was a wonderful episode just because I think it really finally got to the crux of, of some of one of our biggest differences um, which is um, not even one of our biggest differences, but probably one of the more interesting topics that we can get into, which yeah. is um, the whole, are you born an alcoholic? Um, are you just this way? And and the right. whole thing that comes along with what... Um, are people, are alcoholics actually different than... That's right. Than problem drinkers. That's or right. Drinkers, yeah. No, it is. I think that's why we we just got into it right before we got on the phone, and then that carried into the conversation. It was just, it was so good. She's so smart. So oh. we haven't even said who we're talking about. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so we, um, this episode is our interview with Annie Grace. She is the author of This Naked Mind, which she just released in October. Um, it is available on Amazon. And it is a fantastic, fantastic book. Um, Holly found it first. She recommended No, you found it first. Oh, yeah. I found it first. And then I said, told you to read it. But you read it first. Yeah. Um, and, and then, yeah. You, I read you it in like two days. It. And I freaked mm-hmm. out. Yeah. Yeah. And so we got in touch with her. And she is... A mother of two sons. She lives in Colorado. She has a fantastically interesting story, mm-hmm. and um, a, a, just a really smart, wonderful woman uh, on this 
path. And it was such a great conversation. I can't wait to share it. I can't wait to continue this conversation. I think it's so important. And I can't wait to have her on again. <laughs> I know. Like, when can you come back? <laughs> she and I are talking again tomorrow. So it's just, it really, really turned into, um, I mean, it was a wonderful conversation. We got into some really good, good points. Um, and I think for you and me, at least, this is how I felt when it was done. I felt like it br- it brought our differences even closer or it made, I think yeah. it made some clarifications that maybe you and I have never really ventured into. We know exist, um, d- these differences exist, but we've never really actually spoken to them to try and bridge them or try and, and um, work yeah. through them. And it we, really... right. I agree. Yeah. No, it, it we got to scratch the sur- scratch more than the surface on a lot of things that we have touched on but not gone into. And I think also, you know, we we did have a lot of these conversations or we we talked around them or you know about other differences early on in this podcast in this in home, you know, in our first few episodes, especially. But we've, you know, I've changed since then. That was. 25 six weeks ago uh half a year ago and i've changed since then for sure yeah. i you know I think it, it shows that we're perpetually evolving and we're you know growing and learning and this is you know that's a part of the beauty of this so yeah we never really got into it in this at this level and i do feel like it helps um it helps to do all the things you said yeah. Yeah. So it's a wonderful book. I mean, this is a great interview. It gets into a lot of great stuff, but it's also just, if you guys get a chance, pick up this book. It doesn't matter what your belief system is. It doesn't matter anywhere, like where you are on the path. It doesn't matter if you're still drinking or you're questioning sobriety or you're sober or whatever path you've taken to get there. It's just a really great, great collection of resources. She's a researcher. She's very similar to me in that she has to know the exact why of things. Like she really has mm-hmm. to dig into and really make it, have it make sense for her. And she's done a tremendous amount of work researching uh, how alcohol, essentially, you know, how alcohol and addiction perpetuates in our society and how our attitudes condition us towards alcohol and condition us towards recovery. And it is, it's very similar, not very similar, but it, it runs the same lines as, as um, the easy way to control drinking and, um, and Jason Vell's kick the drink, but it just is, it goes so much further. And the best part of it is it's, she's one of, she's, 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 not, I don't want to say she's one of us, but she's definitely like in that target demographic that I think listens to this podcast. Um, mm-hmm. And totally. so it's, it just, uh, it's good. Well, and she's a woman. Like both of she's those a woman. books were written by men. Who British were, men. Were not, were not in the U.S. Yep. And this is really specifically speaks to women in the, in the United States and yeah. in this specific way. And I, I love that. Um, yeah. Yeah. And she, so her website is This Naked Mind. Uh, the, it's the title of her book. So thisnakedmind.com. You can read all about her and get um, a free download of the first 40 pages of the book, which is awesome. Yeah. And um, check everything out. So I can't wait for everyone to listen. Yeah. All right. Here we go. Right. Here's Annie. Hey, Laura. Hey, Annie. <laughs> Hey. hey, ladies. How's it going? Good. Good. So happy Aunt- Sunday morning. Oh, happy Sunday morning. Yeah. Yes. Feels- first, first podcast of 2016, too. <gasps> it is. It is. Wow. Yeah. 
Um, Annie, how are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm excited to be here. I've been a listener, so this is very cool for me. <laughs> I love that you listen. Um, you're calling from? Colorado. Mountains in Evergreen. It's very cold. Nice. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we went skiing and we had a negative 30, oh my 30 God. day in the morning. It was horrible. But in steamboat? Is that what you said? Or skiing? We were skiing in Winter Park and oh, we yeah. passed through Fraser and the car temperature got down to negative 30. Oh my God. That's crazy. crazy. I'm bitching what because are... it's like 46 overnight here in San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> I'm single I think your pee will like freeze coming out of you at uh... negative 30. <laughs> oh my god <laughs> awesome and laura you just got out of a yoga class back in yes Boston. i just got out of hot yoga it's it's a nice day here it's been like the most mild winter we've had since i can remember so i'm feeling lucky um i have a question when you were running you took a picture of your feet in sneakers in the snow do you run in sneakers in the snow well <laughs> The, I was in Maine, and I, that was, like, on the road that leads out to the main road that does not have snow on it. Okay. Um, but I have many – I've done many long – because I've trained for the Boston Marathon, right? So it's – which is in April. So you train all winter. So, yes, I know how to run in the snow. It takes extra effort, and it's a lot slower. Jeez. It feels like that'd be very dangerous. Oh, yeah. It, it's an easy way to roll your ankle for sure. Oh, I was thinking of, like, falling on your ass. but Well, that too. So easy way to break yourself. Yeah. All right. So um, super excited to do this. Yes. And um, we're just going to kind of jump right in. Yes. So I have I'm a gonna... major, major girl crush, crush on Annie and her book. Yeah. It was, it's an amazing book. And I'm just, yeah, I'm, I'm super excited to do this. So I know you do. You texted me right <laughs> when you started reading it. Like this, you have to read this right away. All right. So, so I'm going to start um, with, so you're, Annie, the demographic for, like your demographic, for, you know, for your book and what I imagine um, was, well, you, you, your story, you know, high, high achieving female, um, had pretty big, you know, life going on. Now you're a mother um, and your demographic is ours, you know, our listeners and our readers of our blogs and um, who are connected to online. And so I think that so many people do and will identify with your story. Um, so I wanted to hear you give us kind of the, the five minute version of, of your story, of your sort of drinking story. And um, we'll get into the recovery specifics later, but just, you know, who you were um if you were going to tell your story in like five minutes, yeah, give, yeah, give it to sure. us. Well, first of all, Holly, the, the girl crush is requited. So <laughs> <laughs> I love your blog. Um, but yeah, so I um, started really heavily drinking after I got married and moved to New York City and I got into a job. And it was funny because I definitely drank in college and stuff, but it wasn't until I was a really, you know, academic pretty much of a nerd, you know, graduating very top of my class, had a lot of scholarship stuff like that. And so I was really focused. So drinking just didn't, you know, partying wasn't a big thing I did. Um, and I considered myself, you know, I didn't even really think about it, to be honest. And then suddenly I found myself in New York City 
And I had gotten really quickly promoted in different roles after getting my master's degree in marketing. And I found myself as the youngest VP in this company, which was multinational. It was in 28 countries. And I was constantly going out with people, executives from the company. And I was traveling, you know, at least two days a week. So overnight travel to other cities with these men, mostly men, I'd say 80% men who were drinking a ton. And that was what you did. You'd go on store visits all day or airport visits. It was an airport based business. And then we'd get back to, you know, the hotel bar, have a few drinks before we would go to um, dinner, drink at dinner, and then close down the bar. And that was just the ritual. And it was very much like you had to be doing it, because that's where all the important stuff seemed to happen. I mean, it wasn't during the day, important stuff happened. And the people getting promoted were the ones at the bar. And it was, um, and before that I had worked in an ad agency and at the ad agency, we literally had like liquid lunches. Like you would imagine. Where I've been in advertising emergency, the guy (laughs) would call us, we'd all go into the conference room and he'd pour us drinks so that we could brainstorm. And so, um, I really started to work hard to keep up and get a tolerance. And I had like a method, I do a, a glass of wine and then a glass of water. And I mean, it's embarrassing to admit, but I would literally go back to my room, like pretending I was going to the bathroom, throw up the wine. If I felt like I was getting too tipsy, come back down and drink more just to be able to stay out with these guys. And, you know, it worked. Like I definitely got those promotions and, um, And I built a really intense tolerance on alcohol. I mean, to the point where I could out drink anybody pretty much. And I was the ringleader, you know, fast forward a few years, I was the one who was like, really, you're going home. It's only three in the morning. What are you doing? And, you know, closing down the bar all hours of the night and then getting up at eight in the next morning. And I remember just joking with my husband about the fact that I was on pretty much a coffee and wine diet. Like I heard this term after I stopped drinking of, alcoholorexia or something like that, but basically where you're consuming more calories in alcohol than you are in food. That was absolutely, (laughs) I was skinnier than I had been. And I was drinking wine and the carbs would get me through till the coffee. And then the coffee would get me through till the wine. And it was just this, you know, really intense cycle that pretty much happened every time I was out of the country. And every time I was on a work trip, And then, you know, it happened at home too, because then at home, yeah, I wasn't probably drinking quite as much, but drinking just, you want to drink more. And so there wasn't, I mean, I remember my husband being like, well, you know, maybe we should take the night off. And I remember just getting really frustrated with him. Like, what, you think I have a problem? Like, what are you talking about? Why would I want to do that? Like, just really on edge. And so he quickly would drop the conversation, but yeah, it was, it was pretty bad. And I kind of realized after, you know, 10 years of this more or less that it wasn't doing me any more favors because I wasn't even feeling it at the end. I mean, I was drinking so much and I would just, I wanted to do it, but I didn't like it anymore. And I I didn't feel like I just had such a tolerance. Like I could drink two bottles of wine and I didn't really feel it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally understand that the work thing that was a huge part and Holly's too of our story and um, I work in advertising as well and it's it's crazy how how much a part of it 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 is Um, so so 
what was your, did you have like a moment of knowing something had to change or was it a bunch of moments strung together? I mean, you kind of alluded to it with, you, you realized you didn't want to do it anymore and you couldn't feel it, but was there a moment? Yeah. I mean, and you know, it was an interesting thing that happened because pot became legal in Colorado mm-hmm. and I really sort of switched alcohol for pot cause I thought it was much healthier. And, um, my brother is a grower and stuff. And so I was like, all right, this is a lot healthier. And so I started really smoking when I was home in Colorado and drinking less. And I felt really proud of myself about drinking less. And I felt like, wow, you know, marijuana saved my life sort of thing. Like, this is great. I'm totally, you know, whatever. But it also, (laughs) I had to live in London for three months out of every year and we'd go as a family over to London. And so I was in London about, I'd say it was almost two years ago now. And of course, marijuana is not legal in London. Mm -hmm. And, um, I was there and when, you know, pot is something, unfortunately, it's something that I don't like doing. Like it makes me feel really bad now. And I know that I was just kind of switching one addiction for another, but in London, I couldn't do it. And so in Colorado, it wasn't, there isn't the same stigma with marijuana. Like, it's not like you need to wait till five o'clock. So, you know, I could smoke at any time of the day and it was fine. And then all of a sudden in London, I was waking up in the morning and being like, oh, I'm going to finish that bottle of wine before I go to work. And that had never happened to me before. That was like new. And I was like, oh shit, you know? And so it was this, I drank more on that six week trip to London than I had ever drank before in my life. And I remember going to the London eye with me and my husband, my kids and my dad was over visiting. And my husband and I had like put beers in our my purse to like bring them to the London eye at noon. Cause we couldn't uh-huh. handle like not going. And one of the beers exploded and everybody was looking at us and this beer was like exploding everywhere. It was one of those massive beers and we have our kids and they're drenched in beer. And I'm just, oh. my dad is just looking at me like, what are you doing? And I remember coming home from that trip and just being like, okay, something has got to change. And one thing I will say, you know, I got back to Colorado and I will say about smoking as much as it is addictive and as much as it is something that, you know, um, completely want to eliminate from my life, I feel like it did make me really honest with myself about my problem with alcohol. Like yeah. it was really honesty juice, you know, you smoke and you, someone could ask me anything and I would tell them the truth. And oh, I like while you were high, while I was high. And yeah. so I started just recording what was true And I started just writing it down and I would write down and I was like, I have a problem. And then it was written and it was in print and I started journaling and, and that's how the book came about. It was really a year of my journals, more or less of me just saying, okay, I have to do something about this. And, um, and I was, you know, I have so much pride, which I hate to admit, but I just do. So, um, I had to find my own kind of way, which, you know, again, I I feel kind of embarrassed about, but now I'm hopeful that it can help other people, but I just, I couldn't do, um, I, yeah. I have to jump in. I, because like, this is, it's just like, you're speaking my story in so many different ways. I mean, it's incredible. Like I spent so much of my time too, when I was stoned, like coming to like coming to the truth of what was going on with me just in total. Um, a lot of my journaling happened when I was stoned, but, but this other part of it, just like, I don't know of, of the pride factor. I don't, maybe it's pride. I think that's such a, I think that sells it so short though. I think that sells it so short. Cause you've written like 
the book that I wish I could have written. Like you wrote the book that I needed to read that I wish I had read a couple of years ago. And I don't think it's pride. And I think it's, I think it's a gift. I think it's that you, something in you knew that something wasn't going to work for you. And it brought you to this other conclusion. And now you've strung together something in a book that so many people are going to find helpful. So pride, fine. I mean, I felt the same exact way. I was like my biggest concern for so long in this is that it was my ego talking and, and, you know, and I just was a rule breaker and I just, you know, and there was something wrong with me from it. But actually, in fact, that's what saved my fucking life. And Mm. so I think like that saved you. I think maybe pride or whatever, but I do think that that's, that's such a gift. I don't think it's anything to be ashamed about at all. I think it's amazing. Oh, thanks. I agree. So, uh, no. So, so did you hit, so I'm assuming that was kind of your bottom was that moment with the beers and the the kids. And, um, did you, how did you actually stop drinking? Like, what did that look like? Um, well, I started reading a lot and, you know, it was funny because I got back to the States and I was, you know, I immediately again replaced pot for alcohol and it just made me a zombie. And, and I realized that I didn't want to be smoking. So actually, I really wanted to stop smoking. Um, and that, you know, I I wanted to stop both, but I thought, well, I actually, um, so I got Alan Carr's book, and it was the easy way to quit smoking for women or something with all these hilarious drawings in it. And yeah, I started reading I that book. <laughs> Are you talking about smoking Cigarette. pot or smoking cigarettes? Cigarette. I'm talking about smoking pot, but there was no smoking pot book. Yep. Um, so I okay. bought a smoking okay. cigarettes okay. book, which I don't know why, but I thought maybe that would help. So <laughs> I have was- the same book and my boyfriend gave my, my ex-boyfriend gave that to me. Anyway, I'm <laughs> looking at it right now. It's pink. <laughs> yes, totally. And, um, and so I had, it was funny how I stumbled on Alan Carr cause he's not, you know, all that popular here in the States, but, um, I had just this horrible back pain for like three years after my second son was born. I couldn't even pick him up. It was horrible. And I, my dad was riding at the gondola in Aspen with some guy and he was telling this guy about my back pain. And this guy's like, she needs to read this book by Dr. John Sarno. And so my dad recommended this book and I read it and literally by the end of the book, my back pain had gone away. So I was like, okay, that's nuts. And what the premise was, was that the back pain was actually these deep repressed feelings and that we all have kind of what Carl Jung calls the shadow self. And we have this intense stuff going on in us. And like with a kid, it's really obvious, right? Like this kid is screaming and it's making you nuts, but you cannot be a good person and feel like you want to kill your child. So you don't allow yourself to feel like you want to kill your child. And so you repress that anger and that rage because you won't even allow it into your conscious mind. Consciously, you will not allow yourself to feel negative negativity towards this helpless being because it's just not okay. And then it manifests Holy in shit. pain. And um, basically, you know, he said, look, you can accept that here in the introduction. He told us that was the premise of the book. But he says, that's your conscious mind accepting it. I have to get your unconscious mind to accept this. And in order to get your unconscious mind to accept this, you're going to have to read 300 pages of me trying to speak repeatedly to your unconscious mind. And so I read this book and it was amazing and my back pain was healed and I've been pain free ever since. I ski all the time. What's it called? It's called Healing Back Pain by Dr. John Sarno. It's literally like amazing. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, not to get off topic, but I actually had a yoga teacher once tell me she didn't believe in, in back pain or that it was, she didn't believe that it was an actual physical pain. And I've heard that, you know, Tommy Rosen's story of recovery 2.0, he, I mean, the reason he had quit, he'd quit drinking and smoking and he was, I think, well into his recovery and by, in maybe 10 years into his recovery, possibly more. And he, um, he was in major gambling addiction and after a huge gambling bender, he ended up um, like basically immobilized and in so much pain and was about to have back surgery. And then yeah. he found Kundalini Yoga and um, broke his addiction and kind of pulled all this stuff up and healed his back pain, not through the physical yoga, but actually through the um, the psycho the psychosomatic part of it. And so um, I don't know. I see. I just I think that's it's something I've heard before, and I think it's um, that's yeah, amazing. Yeah, it is fascinating. Yeah, and this I want to. Yeah, okay. So that's really cool. <laughs> so go I, on. Like, okay, well, that is exactly what's going on with my drinking. Is like I wanted to be drinking less than I was, and I had this huge desire to be drinking, and I didn't get it. And it was this really internal struggle for me, as it is for anybody who wants to stop drinking. And I believe the struggle is really between your conscious desire to kind of drink less and this far more powerful unconscious desire to be drinking because you believe that it does all these great things for you and your unconscious mind, you know, you don't consciously choose who to fall in love with. You know, your unconscious mind is really responsible for how you feel. And so if you feel like drinking is key to relieving stress or to having a good time or, you know, all of these things, but you consciously are trying to deprive yourself of it, you create this huge internal struggle. And so I kind of had this aha moment where I was like, I wonder if this is what happen- is happening to me. So I flipped out, tried to get in touch with the author. He's really old, Dr. Sarno, and he um, is no longer taking calls, but he has his protege who's written a few more books on this same topic. His name is Steve Ozanich. And um, Steve got, he took my call. We had a two-hour Skype call, and I laid it all out there for him and said, look, this is what I'm struggling with. Do you think this would work for addiction? And he said, Dr. Sarno has always said this would work for addiction. Absolutely. Like, this totally will work. And so I was like, all right, this is what I'm going to do is I'm going to change my unconscious desire for alcohol. Um, And then I had in marketing, like the other piece of the puzzle was this guy, Dave Gray, who in marketing, he's kind of like a marketing guru. Like a lot of marketers put together this thing called a persona. So instead of writing your marketing email to a ton of people, you're writing it to a single person and you give that person a name and you go through their hopes and desires and wants. And, you know, you come up with these personas and he was the one who did this persona map initially. And it went kind of crazy all over the world. And he also is writing a book, which is, I don't think quite published yet called liminal thinking. And liminal is just the space between your conscious and your unconscious mind. So it's more or less the bridge. And what he did is he had a really methodical way to take and uncover what's happening in your unconscious through your conscious thought. And Eckhart Tolle, he says something like everything unconscious can be uncovered through conscious awareness. And so this liminal thinking process was what I used to really kind of dig into, okay, why exactly do I think that alcohol is relaxing me? Like, is that true? And so I got in touch with Dave Gray and he's amazing. Um, and I applied his, his thought process to my addiction through again, a series of journals. And, um, 
And really, I remember it was so crazy because I walked out of my office one day and I'd been doing these Skype calls and I've been doing this reading and I've been doing this research and I walked out and I told my husband, I was like, all right, if you want to get drunk with me tonight's night, because I'm not drinking after this. And he, I mean, you could have blown him over. Like he looked at me like I was insane. Oh my God. Because you hadn't been, had you not been um, sort of keeping him along through the journey or was it happening so fast that you were just like, I'm going to, I'm. Yeah, like, was he not privy to yeah, your process? Yeah, he, he kind of was, but, like, I'm kind of the kind of person that I'm telling him so many things all at once and so many ideas that he kind of probably <laughs> filters it. Yeah, <laughs> he's like, okay, there she goes. Yeah, yeah, I, I like know. Like, she's on this tangent it. right now? Okay, let's just let that one play yeah. out. Um, so, so we went and had a bottle of wine that night. It was miserable. I had a huge hangover the next day and I didn't drink since. I didn't want to. It was just like, that was it. Get yeah. out. Holy shit. I'm like fascinated by this. I'm sitting there thinking you're, you're totally brilliant. <laughs> I am too. I am too. Well, I mean, but it's also not unlike, I mean, I, the brilliance part, but it's also not unlike my experience, this last part that you talked about, because I remember going to that wedding. I knew I was in the middle of reading Alan Carr's Easy Way and I knew, like, I, I poured my last drink on the train, and I knew it was my last drink. And then the next day, I mean, it shocked the fuck out of everybody. I showed up, and I was like, I'm not drinking anymore. And it came out of nowhere. It wasn't like I, I mean, I, I had been, like, prepping some people. Like, I know I have a problem. I know I have a problem. But it was just like that. And yeah. and, and it was like that for 60 days. And I, you know, I, I fully believe, like, a lot of this had to do, I mean, I've never actually even explored this whole unconscious, conscious part of this or Sarno's work. I have the, I actually am looking at the book that you recommended. It's not the back one. It's the divided mind, um, that I haven't read yet, but, um, but I, but I, it was just so, it was just done. It was just done and it was just broken. And, um, I mean, have you, so when you look at Alan Carr's work, is that what he's doing? Like, why did that work on me in that way? Is that the same thing as Sarno's work? Is that the same thing that you as liminal thinking or, I think that's what he's doing. I just think that he didn't realize it. Like, I think yeah. that he is changing the unconscious mind through his writing, for sure. Like, I well, absolutely you can believe that. Feel, yeah, you can feel that happening when you read his book. I mean, I, I even though I was annoyed by his book, and I read it, and I d hated the writing, and I thought it was, awful. like, awful, <laughs> and I just was offended by the like, you know. But I, but I still, it creeped, those, his thoughts really broke a lot of, things in my brain without a better way to say it and it got in there you know mm -hmm. and and it and same with Jason Vale's book and your book like I think I think you're totally right I think that's what he was doing without knowing it um but I think yeah. the brilliance part I think comes from you sort of experiencing this but but putting these pieces together right it's so beautiful that this is how things work you know someone wrote a book whoever who knows how long ago Dr. Sarno wrote that book and then you you piece these things together and applied you know, the thinking of marketing and like the, uh, you know, uh, things that didn't necessarily apply to addiction and you applied it. And it's so, it's so fascinating to me. Yeah, it is. So, um, I guess that's a good, a good, so I have to know, did your husband quit drinking too? It's so funny because he, um, yes, he did, but he did it right before. So the book was published October 15th. Uh -huh. And, um, I was like, look, there's a lot of shit in here. 
and I talk about our sex life and you yeah. have to read it before I push publish. Like you've been procrastinating reading this book. So you have to read it. So he read it literally on like October 13th and he read the whole thing in a day and he has not had a drink since. And really? it's weird because I didn't put any pressure on him. Like I was like, yeah. no problem, whatever you want to do. And he's like, I'm not going to quit drinking. Just so you know, it's not my thing. I was like, that's cool. It's cool. But he hasn't drank. And I mean, if you were to ask him, are you ever going to drink again? He wouldn't tell you, oh, I'm not going to ever drink again. But right. like, we're at a concert. I was like, hey, you know, do you want a beer? And he's like, no, it's going to make me tired. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I always find because a lot of people, um, a lot of women, you know, have and we have relationships where we drink together. Right. And yeah. it it can cause it's always interesting to see how that plays out, you know, with with couples um, with one quitting drinking and whatnot. And so yeah, I feel really anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's huge because if you can be on that path together, it's pretty powerful. But I also um, have to say, one of the important things that you said, though, it didn't affect, I mean, whether or not he had quit drinking, did it matter? It didn't matter to you on some level. Is that right? No. Yeah, yeah. It, it didn't matter to me. And I mean, we still, like, we have alcohol in the house just because we haven't gotten rid of it. Like, he bought a growler, and I think it's probably bad now, but it's in our, <laughs> I was looking at it like, who need to throw this shit away? But yeah, like, literally, like, it doesn't, it doesn't bother me to have it in the house anymore. Yeah. So, and that was, to, it's totally different. Like, it's totally different. Like, if you would have told me that, A, I mean, I was such a proponent of alcohol. Like I would yeah. be leader. Uh, like if you would have told me that I was going to be the one who could resist it if it was in the house, I would have just yeah. not believed you. If you would have told me, I would have written a book about it. Oh my gosh, I would have laughed. Like uh, my ass. Me off. too. I yeah, I think it's hilarious and, and totally mind blowing all the time. No, I used the. I mean, I kept the, I kept a bottle of whiskey and I used it. I didn't throw it away. I used it to burn. Um, I used it in my uh, essential oil diffuser. Actually, nice. like burned it in order to really, uh, to burn. yeah, because you you can add like one of my friends told me she was using something to like make the dif- make it diffuse more, and I yeah I kept it around and I used it for that. I had a bottle of wine in my fridge. It was this, I mean it's the same and and it was very similar to you. If you had told me that, I mean I thought I couldn't resist alcohol if it was in my presence. I mean I was an alcohol monster, and like it just but I but after the flip it just it what it could be around it could be around and it wasn't a big deal I just when I Airbnb my apartment in October I finally threw away the bottle of wine that I'd had in there for a couple of years so funny yeah that's a very specific thing though everybody's different that way for sure I agree I absolutely agree yeah I say I'm just thinking of the people that are like should I be able to have alcohol in my house and it's like no if you don't want it in your house you don't want it in your house. I, you know, so, you have- no, I absolutely agree. I'm just, I'm lamenting on the, on the shared experience here. Because- yeah, yeah, yeah. I, know. <laughs> I do think that there's like a, um, there's a really sort of scientific reason that that happens. Like there's a professor, his name's Thad Polk and he's a neuroscientist and he did all this work on addiction. And he said that, you know, it's like, I'm going to get this kind of butchered, but basically, you know, you ring the bell, the dog salivates and there's this precursor to that dopamine release that happens and you know alcohol releases dopamine and you can progress so far where you actually change how your brain responds so I believe that addiction is definitely a continuum and you can get to a point no doubt in my mind because you know I feel like I've reached that point with other addictions where you just see something and the craving is so intense and it's out of your control and your brain actually changes where you see a bottle of wine and that dopamine releases and that cravings on. And it's the same as having, you know, drink a few glasses and then have that dopamine release. So I think that that can happen. 
And you should be really careful because you don't want to tempt yourself. I mean, it's a miserable feeling to want, crave something you don't want anymore in your life. And yeah, keep it away (laughs) if you need to. Yeah, no. And I, I, I think that that's a really important and profound point because for me, alcohol, I, everything reminded me of drinking. Yeah. Everything. And I think that's what a lot of people experience in early recovery is everything. You're in a constant state of, like you said, wanting a thing and not and then this like battle with your brain, right? Your brain getting hijacked all the time and you saying, I can't do it. And it's everywhere. It it, it was uh, for a year. I couldn't. It felt out of my control to say no when those cravings came on. It was so strong I wouldn't have even called it a craving. It was not even in my conscious mind. You know, it was like, I see, uh, it, it, it could be five o'clock hitting, you know, this is when you drink after work. Right. It could be, um, seeing, it could be the way people were like talking to each other and laughing and like someone making an offhanded comment about it, alcohol. It could be me seeing a bottle of wine. It, it could have nothing to do with alcohol, but I did, it happened. What just exactly what you said, like the precursor, it was on, you know, and it, and it's arresting to someone who's trying to, to, to not drink, to feel that because it feels like something's wrong. Like you're never going to not feel that way. That's right. Um, I think it's important to express like one of the things that like explains how this, like how this works. I don't know any of you've ever heard of it. It's called pleasure and woven or Dr. Macaulay's work. Do you know his stuff? No, I don't. It's really, it's interesting. You should definitely get it. So it's a, it's a DVD. It's called pleasure and woven. And it basically talks about how, um, how addiction forms. And, and how pleasure is constructed. And the first thing it's t- it talks about is like just you're right, like the priming for the dopamine release. And so it's like going to like it's um, he kind of sets it up as like the first part of this is, is actually like what your brain starts to trigger because it dopamine is essentially like it's a, it's it's something that drives us towards seeking survival. I mean, it's what's kept us surviving for years. Dopamine release is whenever we're going to get anything that promotes our survival. And so it's, and it's, I mean, it's, it's your survival instinct. It's one of the, it's the thing that thinks 15 seconds ahead of you. It's not the thing that thinks right. with your higher mind. It's the thing that thinks this is how, like fight or flight. It's the thing that thinks about food. having sex, food, and you get so, it gets so wrapped up in that fight, in that survival instinct that it's beyond. I mean, that's why it's a huge, huge thing to recover. It is. I mean, there is like this, this part that we're talking here, the unconscious, the subconscious, that's, that's one thing, but there, but there is also a ton of brain chemistry stuff that's going on. I recommend to anybody that's listening to this Mm. to get pleasure unwoven. And it just talks about how this starts to wrap up and essentially how we start to remove our higher mind. And we start to basically just move from our survival instinct, which causes so much of this like intense craving that you're talking about and this priming Mm. and being around it. So, yeah. Yeah. And if, to interrupt that process, like I, you, when you explained that to me for the first time, Holly, I, it really changed me because it, it, it shifted. Remember my train ride into the city where yeah. I was completely, I had a bottle of wine between my legs, like ready to drink it. But I, I stopped, like it's stopping that train, like the, the literally metaphorical <laughs> and yeah, it is, is a, you're going against your evolutionary instinct. Like you're, you're going like, that's why it's so, I mean, that's why it's so powerful. And that's why when you do that, like, I think that's one of the things that I really want to stress on is when you do that, you actually become so 
strong because you're going against your evolutionary natural instinct to go forward and to survive. You are going against the thing that has like helped, you know, microorganisms and all sorts of things evolve over billions of years. And you're going against yeah. billions of years of like trajectory by actually yeah. stopping the survival instinct. And that's why there's so much that goes into recovery. And actually that one part of like actually pulling up out of the survival instinct and, you know, kind of rebuilding your, your higher mind. But yeah, um, it's fascinating and thinking of, I always pictured my actual brain getting rewired a little bit, you know, every time you do that. Yeah. And growing and growing. I, the, anyway. Um, okay. So to get back to, um, to get back to Annie's book. So Annie, I'm really curious. So when you wrote, okay, so you went through a year and you like journaled all of this, you had your own experience in this and you built your own. And, and for me, like, it's so interesting. Cause when I read this, I was like certain you'd read Alan Carr and Jason Bell um, and like, and pull and basically taken their work and then recreated it, um, to fit like a fem like from a female voice and to fit a United States demographic. Cause both those guys are, are British. And so, um, so I think it's really like, I'm so interested that this actually started from Dr. Sarno's work. Um, and so if you, like when you wrote this book, can you just explain, like, we haven't even talked about what the book is. At this point, we're like 30 minutes. No, in. yeah. Paraphrase um, the book. Yeah. Can you talk about like what the book is? Like, how do you explain? I can't explain it because it's I think it's so it's so big. I think it's like such an important body of work. And I think it touches on so many things, it includes research. It includes like the liminal thinking aspect of it. It includes the unconditioning. It includes discussing like alcoholic. Or, but I'm really curious about, first of all, um, why you wrote it. Second of all, who you wrote it for. And then um, third, like, um, well, actually, maybe start by saying what it is and then just kind of lead. Like, I'm really curious about, like, all the thoughts that went into building that book and, and like, how you would describe it and how you, what you can tell us about it. Yeah, so the journey was sort of like, I, you know, the back pain thing had happened. And it had happened when I was still heavily drinking and smoking and stuff. But I, I knew that this was um, very key to it. And so that conversation with Steve Ozanich happened. And that was really enlightening. And he gave me kind of the courage. Like he was just basically like, look, you're onto something, do this. And it was really an empowering kind of, you know, meeting of two kindred spirits sort of type of conversation. And then, <clears throat> you know, I'm always reading for work. So I was reading a copywriting book and um, the copywriting book talked about how there's two books that actually hypnotize people when you're reading them. And he talked about this book by Dr. Sarno that I had already read that I, yes, it hypnotized me out of my back pain, if hypnotized is the right word. And he talked about The Easy Way to Quit Smoking by Alan Carr. Um, and so that's when I picked up that book. And it was so random because honestly, it was like in this copywriting book that Alan Carr's book. So I'd already been journaling and I'd already been doing all this stuff. And I'd already been, you know, thinking about liminal thinking and everything else. Um, and then I picked up that easy way to stop smoking book huh. and it was like, okay, that's what he's doing here. He's taking and diffusing every one of these myths and he calls it like counter brainwashing. Right. <laughs> yeah. um, and so, you know, I'd already written a huge amount of, of what I did, but then, and I had early readers too, which is interesting. And one of my early readers, this guy named Owen, who's this great guy and he's British, he'd read, he'd read Alan Carr's book and he's like, okay, you've got to read Alan Carr's book and he'd read Jason Vale's book. And so after I'd, and my first draft, it was at the editor and I read Jason Vale's book. And then Jason had like really cool tidbits. I mean, he's quoted yeah. all throughout the book, to be honest. Yeah, yeah I know. Is, 
there was so much cool shit he said. And it was like, oh, that was such a better way to say that. So <laughs> I went back and added in, you know, some of his in some of his wisdom and stuff. And then um there's a guy called Craig Beck who yeah. um wrote a book too. So then yeah. I haven't read all of Craig's book, but I did skim it, you know, to see if there was any other, you know, really key sort of insights and stuff. So he has a few quotes in there as well. And of course, um, I, I went and read Alan Carr's book. And so I did all and that. You read as, Alan Carr's The Easy Way to Control Drinking. You did. Read yeah, I read okay. his Easy Way to Control Dr- Drinking and yeah. his Stop Drinking Now book. And, yeah. you know, it's interesting because I think The Easy Way to Control Drinking, um, which is out of print and you can't even really get it in the States anymore. And I actually contacted John Dicey, who's the CEO of Alan Carr, and said, well, you know, let me help you put this in the States because it's so needed. And, yeah. you know, it's such a great book. And um, he said they were really focused on smoking. And, you know, if you go on their Facebook page, it's kind of a bummer because, you know, they're so focused on stopping smoking, which is amazing. And that's great. But they celebrate stopping smoking with like a glass of wine and like tons of God. No, it's his. I mean, I used I read Easy Way to Control Smoking for Women. I read Easy Way to Control Smoking for years. Like I read those books. They didn't do a fucking thing. They just did it. It did not work for me. Um, and then I read easy way to control drinking and I finally got what he was doing. And then I went back and I used it for cigarettes after the fact, but it was easy way to control drinking. That was like, save my fucking life. It's just, it is, it's a great, easy book to read. And that's, yeah. oh, that's such a total shame. And it's a bummer too, because then like the other problem that I had and and I got in touch with John about this and he was great. Like he had a really nice dialogue with me and stuff and we chatted back and forth and I was really like, look, I want to, I want to bring this over. I want to help. I want to do whatever. And basically he said, well, we rewrote it all and now it's come out. It's called a stop drinking now. And, um, there was two big issues. So I read that book and stop drinking now was written after Alan had passed away. Um, so it's not in his voice anymore. Yeah. And it was written for problem drinkers by people who weren't problem drinkers. Yeah, and yeah. like, that's okay. totally not Alan's philosophy. Like Alan's yeah. philosophy is that we are all on a continuum because it's addictive. Like there's, right. you know, he talks about cigarette holics or cocaineism and, and just yeah. talks about the falsity of that because look, you're, you're drinking something addictive. You could become addicted. It's proven in rats. Like people yeah. are humans. We're organisms. We can become addicted to this over with yeah. sufficient exposure. And so he, you know, the whole book was like, it kind of like, it, it really kind of was sad for me because I was like, Oh, this sucks. The easy way to control alcohol was so good. And now it's out of print and now they're focusing all their effort on the smoking. And then this stop drinking now book, and then the other bummer is that I wouldn't have picked up a book called Stop Drinking Now. That's right. And, you know, it's one of the reasons yeah. I call my book Control Alcohol. And, of course, if you read to the end, it's about, you know, the way to control it is not to put it in your mouth. But, um, like, you know, people have written me thank you letters for writing, calling it that because – they wouldn't have picked up a stop drinking book. And that's where we are as drinkers. Like you wouldn't want to stop. So no, I've talked about this so many times. I, I went with the night that I knew I had to stop drinking. I went on Amazon. The only book that I would buy, I mean, there's, there's many books about, about alcohol and, and, and sobriety, but there's really honestly, like the only book I would have bought is the one that told me I could control it. Right. Yeah. It's like the easy way to control alcohol. Yes, I will buy that. That seems way more in line with my philosophy. <laughs> and then at the end of it, I mean, it can be maddening because at the end it's like, ha ha, you can't control it. <laughs> can't, <right. laughs> so stop. But you, but, it, but that's like the entry point and people need an entry point. 
So I agree. I, I'm, I'm glad you called it what you did too. I get haters though, too. I get lots of people who haven't read the book who just write me these scathing notes about yeah. alcohol cannot be controlled. How can you even say that you're going to be killing people with that title because you're giving people false hope. And I'm like, you know, at first I was really responding to each one and explaining it, but now I'm kind of, you know, just pressing delete, which I feel guilty about. But no, we call them like, I mean, it's Laura and I call them Doreen's. We get we get that all the time. And we just <laughs> delete. Doreen was some was a hater and uh, um, of me or whatever. And I yeah, so now we call them all Doreen's. So you can take that and you can say bye, Doreen. No, but I think that I mean, I wanted to ask this down the line um, after, because I still want you to explain what the book is and what it does and how you market it. Um, I'd love for you to say that. But I do want to talk about, um, I think we'll get into this right after you do that, because I do want to talk about, you and I get the same thing, because I, I, wrote, a, I wrote an article called, Hi, My Name is Holly, and I'm Not an Alcoholic. And, um, and, then, I, and then just for added zing, I put in parentheses um, with an asterisk, no one is. And then um, I published it on my LinkedIn profile and it got no hits. And then all of a sudden, like last January, 40,000 people read it, which for me is like a, an avalanche in, a, in the world ending. And so, um, but I got a lot of, I got a lot of great feedback, but I also got the thing that just started to really, really unend me, which was people, the thing that, that scares me the most, because I'm not doing this. I'm like, I'm not doing this to like cause harm. I'm doing this to help people. And the thing that terrifies me the most is that I do end up hurting people. And I got the email from somebody, um, not from somebody, from a lot of somebody's that said, you're dangerous. You're going to kill people. You're taking away the thing that people need in order to keep them sober. Um, and like, and, and that part really, really got to me. So I want to get into that, but, but before we do, can we talk about, um, can you just, can you, market the book and explain like what it is and how it's written and what its intention is and um that yeah yeah for sure so basically it's um it's I'd say my story but I really poured a huge amount of time into researching it because I'm kind of the kind of girl that needs to have an explanation I need to know why things work so instead of just an opinion it is a lot of opinion but then it's backed up by a lot of fact and I spent a bunch of time really trying to understand the brain, understand why these things were happening that I couldn't explain. So in a nutshell, the premise is that you would have this conscious desire to drink less. You have this unconscious, far more strong, powerful desire to keep drinking because you believe it's vital to your life. You would read the book. And in the book, I take you through kind of a narrative of a lot of different facts, but then I also take you through these liminal points. And each liminal point is, okay, let's explore, is alcohol really key to relaxation? This is why you believe it, because you know, you've seen people do it, you've experienced that, yes, it takes the edge off for yourself. Let's look at why, what reality is, and then you can draw your own conclusion. So the book isn't really about rules, but it's really about asking a ton of questions that I asked myself. I ask of the reader so that by the end of the book, you know, and, and tons of people have read it. It's like so humbling, honestly. But I mean, we're upward of 20,000 people that have read this book now. And Amazing. people write me, I get letters, you know, usually once okay. a day, just saying, you changed how I feel about alcohol. I no longer want to drink. And I think it's about changing your Amazing. point of view from 
I don't get to drink anymore, which is kind of like an alcohol diet. Like you're always going to be depriving yourself of something you want to really digging in and making it. I don't have to drink anymore. I never have to feel hungover. I never have to experience embarrassment. I never have to do something I regret. I am free from that. And that is just such a beautiful and liberating way to live. And, um, and I'm, I'm not saying it, it, it happens by the end of the book, but then you totally have to keep it up. And I think that's the thing. And I, I'm hoping that will be the topic of my next book. And I think that's one of the reasons that your course is so great, Holly, is that, you know, we live in this world where we are susceptible to 500 advertisements a day on average, you know, and billions of bits of information. And there's so much pro alcohol that you have to protect your unconscious mind. Like your mind is like this precious garden and you can't let the crap in. And, you know, you need to really be on your conscious guard about protecting your unconscious because the desire to drink will creep back in if you don't do anything and it will come back. And I think that's, you know, and I do write about how, how to do that, but I think hopefully I'll, I'll write another book about really how to, do it on an ongoing kind of lifelong basis. Yeah. And I think that's a really important point. And one thing I do want to say, that was the flip for me was like, I had for so long and I think so many of us suffer in between this. I have to, like, there's no way around it. I live in this society and, you know, especially if you fit into a specific demographic where you live in a big city or you have a certain job, you have to, you feel like you have to drink. Like that's the thing you're supposed to do. And at the same time you're battling with, but I have hangovers, but it costs money, but I look puffy, but I gain weight and we don't want to do it. And then there's this like, For me, that flip of like, oh my God, from not being able to do it, thinking I'm not going to be able to keep doing this and to thinking, oh my God, I never have to do this. I never have to face this shit again. is like the, the ultimate for me, that was like, that was the, was key was this, like, I was giddy. I was, I was so Mm -hmm. excited. Um, and that sounds like Pollyanna ish and whatnot, but it's true. But then the thing I always back this up with is that it didn't last for longer than 60 days the first time. And I went right back into my old behavior. And that was because I, first of all, cause I drank because I, I decided it was, you know, I, I, I've kind of flipped back into thinking it offered me a benefit, but also because I didn't do any of the work underneath it to really support it. And I think that what, one of the most important things to say is it is so important to read a book like this and to recondition your mind around alcohol and to really, really pull down and tear up all the stuff that we think that we've been conditioned to believe about it. And I love this, as you say, you can return to a state of being like a non-drinker. That was like what it was for me was like, I went back to where I was 15 before it came into the picture, which I honestly had always dreamed about doing because I remembered there was a point in my life where I could have fun without getting fucked up. Um, But there is this really important part of this, which is that we drink for a reason. A lot of us are like, it fixes something. It, It moves something in us. It fills a hole it balances us out nutritionally or neurochemically. It works, it yeah. works really well. And so if you want, if you remove that, like for me, my pot smoking went out of like through the roof the second that I pulled the plug on alcohol. And mm-hmm. then so did my binge eating and so did my cigarette smoking and a lot of other things. And so that like when I just went back in, like I still didn't fill the hole. And so there is, it's so important to do this part of it, but there's also so much more that you, that needs to be dug out from underneath so because it because it matched alcohol was a match it worked on some level and and if you don't repl- you know it just ends up finding another home if if you don't start to actually work on all the stuff that comes Yeah if you're self medicating which is what most of us are doing with alcohol you need yeah. to address the cause of the symptom that you're self medicating right. you just have to and i think that you know the the beauty of the book is that you can kind of 
read it and then start from this really positive point of view, like giddiness, like that gives you a lot of momentum to dig into the hard stuff. Whereas, you know, my friend who stopped drinking and she's amazing, beautiful person. She's six years sober now. But when she stopped, it was like a tragedy. Like she was, she, she's been divorced. She was more upset stopping drinking than she was getting a divorce. And I'm not kidding. And crying. I would say the same. That sounds like Laura. Yeah, no, it was the same (laughs) experience for me. But I, I also think, um, you, you know, this, it's so tricky because, I needed to feel like the grief of the loss around drinking, like as if it was a real grief to me. And, and that was, you know, why I'm, I I think this is why it's so, and this goes to like where Holly wants to go. It's so important to have all of this information, right? All of these different perspectives, because a lot of what, you know, I'm sure a lot of the criticism you get is from people that follow 12 steps or AA and saying it's, it's contrary to what they have, believed, uh, you know, what got them sober. But I, I think that neither path, neither path is wrong. Both are, are perfect and right. And they, you know, some things work for some people, some, some things work for other people like Holly. And and it sounds like you were very fact-based information-based. Like I need to, I need to, um, I need to know all the information. I need to understand physiologically what happens. I think yeah. that piece is critical for anybody, but I also think understanding like there's, um, there was an aspect for me, like, I love reading the memoirs, because I love the stories of how people felt, you know, Mm -hmm. and how they what their emotional process was. And I think that starts to address the causes and conditions of why you drink in the first place. Mm -hmm. Um, Because and, and I would say too, I wouldn't say I was more upset by quitting drinking than I divorced. But in a lot of ways, I was it was a bigger undoing for me. Um, which is a big thing to say because my divorce is not a small undoing, you know? Yeah. Well, I think like one of the things, I think this is really interesting. So when I first started this, when I first found this, um, this way, and then I went and then I, and then I had my own experience in AA and AA was part of my path. And it's, it's something that I have to say was so important for me to actually, when I stopped drinking, finally, I went to a meeting, right? And I did say I was an alcoholic and this was after reading Alan Carr's book. And it was an interesting experience for me because I actually went in there armed with this other idea, um, but also needing this one part of it, which was to say that I had a problem with it, which was to actually step foot in a meeting like that and actually step over to this other side, that it wasn't just this cute thing that I was doing, that it was actually something that was really, really tragic for me. But here's the interest. This is the interesting part of this. When I first started working on hip sobriety, which was a year late, like maybe, I mean, I, I thought about it, but like really when I started to get into it, maybe like late 2013, early 2014, one of the things that was really motivating to me, um, especially I started this group called Sobriety Club for Girls. Um, I wanted, I was afraid of people getting into AA first at this time. I have to be clear. This was at this time. I was terrified that people were going to be met with that, with that idea that it's a struggle, that it's hard. And I, in my mind, I was like, they've got to know this information first. Like they have to be optimistic about it. And, and be empowered in this way and that it's wrong for them to go through this other step first and to, and to, you know, and to go to a meeting or, you know, and then that's just going to brainwash you in this other way. And so there was this almost, um, there was this almost, um, I mean, you should, I, there was, there's probably like 20 unpublished blog posts from that time, um, that were very, very, um, they were very divisive and very much like they were, they were in the AA bashing territory for sure. And, um, and I've come around now to understand this. And I think this is so important to say, and this is why we do this podcast, which is that it, that was for me, 
that was for me. That was right for me, which means that it might be right for other people, but also that it might be completely wrong for other people. And that there is, there is no, you know, like Annie's book is amazing because it is, it's, it's a, it's just a fucking brilliant piece of work. And I think it's important for everyone to read, just like I think it's important for everyone to like know what the, what AA is, what the 12 steps are, or what, whatever is out there. But I think mm-hmm. it's so important to say that um, the thing that I've learned the most along this path is that it doesn't, the same things don't speak to every single person because we all are oh. wired so differently. And Laura needed her exact path like she needed her exact path. And I needed my exact path like I needed my exact path. And that's, and that's like kind of the, the thing. And we're allowed to, circle. yeah, we're allowed to decide and we're allowed to, to change and we're allowed to. Yeah. And I think the one piece that we actually met on before we had this call with you, Annie, is that we both know that we don't drink. We can't drink. Yeah. However you want to say it. We just, I can't drink. I think of it as I can't drink in safety. I also am, have come around to feeling very optimistic about that is I don't ever have to do that again. I feel that way, you know, in my heart. And you would, you would say the same thing, Holly, you know, you don't want to, you can't, it's not, it's not something you're going to do again. And I think that, you know, that, that being the base, everything else is up for inter, you know, you can decide on your own, um, what it is. And I think the, the, the thing I am, I'm like so excited right now because I love, I love that this is coming this, when I got sober, I was like, where is everybody? And Mm -hmm. I didn't want to think, that AA was the only way because I didn't, I, you know, I had resistance to it. In hindsight, my resistance was not against AA. I just didn't want to stop drinking. You know, I didn't want it. And it, and it didn't feel like there was, I hated that it was one or the other. It felt like that anyway, you know, and you either do this thing or you're in the dark and in the cold and alone. And, um, I feel, I'm so thrilled that it, we are at a point where other ways are really coming to light and we're really talking about it, you know, and we're really like out there with it. Um, it's just, it is so amazing and important to me and I know to Holly and to you, obviously. Yeah. And I, I mean, right before I published the book, like I went to an AA meeting because with my friend who I just mentioned, um, because I just felt like that was the honest, right thing to do. You know, like I talk about the foundation of it and stuff in, in the book and I just didn't feel like I'd have all the information. Mm-hmm. And, um, I was so touched, you know, like I was so humbled by this group of women. I went to a women's meeting who had the courage to walk into this room and to meet together. And, you know, I was, I was really humbled because I honestly felt like it was courage that I wouldn't have had. And again, if we go back to that pride thing, you know, it takes some fucking balls to go and walk into a room of strangers and admit you need help. I mean, it is nuts. And like the support that was provided in that room was unreal. Like the the women, every single one of them gave me their phone number. You know, people I didn't know gave me hugs. Like it was a really beautiful thing. And I think that, you know, for me, like something inside of me, my pride, again, I think would have prevented me from walking into a meeting like that when I would have needed help. And that sucks. And that's on me. But I also think that there's people like me, you know, that that wouldn't walk into that meeting, that the fear of walking into that meeting would be stronger than their need for help. And absolutely, you know, I feel like hopefully, you know, if we can keep having these types of conversations, 
it's just so positive because the infighting kind of in the movement is just heartbreaking. I mean, yeah. <laughs> like yeah. that was so surprising to me. I didn't expect, I expected like alcohol companies to come after me for yeah. their product. I did not expect, you know, people to get upset with me for offering a new perspective. And when that happened, it was, it was surprising, but it's such a minority. It's such a minority because my experience in that meeting was really, truly beautiful. And, um, yeah, so I agree wholeheartedly. Yeah, and I think it, it you know, the AA experience differs depending on where you are. It differs if you, some people don't have meetings around them or they live in a place where they're run a certain way. And, it, you know, so I'm, I'm glad you had that experience. I think all conversations are valid and important. And I think the piece that you loved, you know, the um, fellowship, as it's called in AA, is what everybody needs that, you know, to mm -hmm. some degree in their, in their, or not even to some degree. Everybody needs that in their life, period support of others to be seen and to see, um, for who we really are. And, you know, I think that creating other ways, uh, it only increases that, you know, it only increases that opportunity for connection. Yeah. We were built, we're humans. We were built for connection and more yeah. importantly, we were built to be accepted. And when we can't accept ourselves because we're struggling with drinking, having other people accept us is just as close, you know, and like, then we learn to accept ourselves through other people's acceptance. And that's something that, you know, a fellowship or a tribe or an online group or whatever, like it, it's so vital to the journey. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's really well said. So we, we, I know we're over the hour. So uh, I, Paul, what do you want to, I know we could well, we talk, wanted to talk about, and I think it's important to talk about because I think this is like, cause you and I had like a 15 minute conversation about it before we got on the phone with our, um, which is one of the things that this, this brought up was, um, you know, in your book you assert, and, and this is like this, it kind of got, so Laura and I got into this conversation before this, cause I was talking about, you know, I know Annie's gotten some hate mail about, you know, her assertion that anybody can become an alcoholic um, or that, you know, we don't need to take on the label of alcoholic, which is something that I've gotten um, a fair amount of, of hate mail about as well. And, um, and Laura says, Holly, when you said some, when you told that story about having just one glass of wine with your mother and then being able to stop and go shopping, I thought, no way. So we were talking about, we, what we were actually talking about was whether or not, like, um, you need to take on the label of alcoholic in order. What what, what was it? Like, how do, how it do was, I say that? It was, it was saying, are, are, are we different? Are alcoholics are we different? different than the normal drinker, right? This whole thing of, like, the alcoholic drinker. And I, and I got pissed for a second because it was just that same thing of it, of it being more, like, I sometimes feel that, like, like, and, and I'm just going to say it. Sometimes I feel like you have more street cred as an alcoholic or more street cred in addiction than I do because many different reasons, right? Because you go to AA because I don't because I had this experience, right. you had this other experience. Um, right. But there was this this moment of, you know, if we're talking about it because I personally believe anybody can develop alcohol dependence. I do. I believe anybody, like you say, Annie, given the right set of circumstances, can develop it. Um, and then there's also this idea that there is this particular person that is an alcoholic that was born to be an alcoholic. 
And Laura started saying, I couldn't have done what you did that day with your mom, which got me into this place of saying, like, well, wait a minute. Like, does Am that I defending take, my, like, yeah. Does that take away, like, do I have to keep on proving that, like, I had a problem with alcohol and that, you know, she talked about how she started drinking when she was, like, or when, when she was, from the first time she drank, there was never enough. Well, the same for me. The first time I drank, there was, there was, there was never enough. But it doesn't necessarily mean that just because we came into it that way, that that, that there is like this one person that is an alcoholic and this other person that just has a drinking problem. And so, um, I don't know. It was just a good conversation that I want to get into here a little yeah, bit. I yeah. definitely have some, some thoughts because I think that, you know, it, was, <laughs> it really is at the crux of, um, the people who, who are frustrated with my book, I think is because I kind of take that label. And I think if the label is helping you be sober, then the label is important. And and I'll say that out front, but I'll also say that, you know, in the research that I did, which we're still learning so much about this. I mean, the research that I did was studies that was coming out in 2015, right? So it's very yeah. current stuff. It's stuff that just is happening. And, and I think in the research, what was shown to me was that it is a continuum. And in rats, you know, they don't like alcohol. They don't like the taste of it until they're exposed to it from a certain amount of time. And then they develop a dependence and a craving. And I think in humans, you know, we're so different because we're not force fed it through a, through a tube or whatever. So we, it's not scientific in that way. But I think that Holly, you and I, I'm like you, I could probably have a glass of wine and walk away. I oh, think no, that I if can't. you and I, <laughs> I can't. You no, I was saying, what I was saying is Laura was talking about how I made it, I had one glass of wine and then I went shopping and that I didn't, and that if that was her, she would have had three or four. I mean, I, no, I can't, I mean, I was, I've never, ever, like I always wanted more, but that's the same as like, I always wanted, I mean, if I were to smoke a bowl, I would smoke, you know, an eighth. I just like, and I, I wasn't, a, yeah, I wasn't saying that to be like, you're different than I am. It was just one of those things that like struck my brain when you said it, where I was like, this is no way that I that would have ever happened for me. And I, I think it's a poor example of, I'm not, I wasn't saying you're different at, at all. And I, I think, I think what we're trying to get at, I, let's let Annie continue. Cause I think yeah, you were yeah. heading down. Yeah. Well, I think my point is that there are people, right. I'm not going to fuck with it because I don't want to, <laughs> and because I don't think mm -hmm. it's worth it, but so I'm not going to test it on myself, but there are people who can drink a single glass and walk away. And that yeah. is a very marked difference from someone who can't. Yeah. But I also believe that the person who can, if they were exposed to alcohol for long enough over a long enough period of time, that would change. And mm -hmm. I think that, um, what, what it's called, the study that I read, it's called dopamine hypersensitivity. And it means that the chemistry of your brain, that learning function, you know, the survival evolutionary function that dopamine does, it actually changes in response to a certain substance. So that means that even after you're sober for 30 years, if alcohol is introduced back into your body, you have the same dopamine response. It's hypersensitive and it's stronger than almost anything. It's the reason that people will keep drinking after they're puking, right? Maybe. And that can happen to any human being. Fortunately, certain people stop drinking before that happened, right? So it, yeah. I think we stop drinking along different continuums. And, and for me, like, I feel like that way with pot. Like if pot's around, I will smoke it. I can have a bottle of wine in the house and not drink it. If there was marijuana in the house, I would smoke it. Like, that it's it's a different chemical reaction to it, but it wasn't always that way, which really leads me to believe that we can do that to ourselves. And if somehow you got off that train before it happened, thank goodness, man, because that sucks. But equally, 
it can happen at any time. So I don't think it's a reason to continue drinking right. in moderation for so many reasons, right. not to mention just the mental drama of moderation, but it can happen. So, yeah. you know. Well, and that's what it's, we got to. That was, I mean, that is like, that's exactly what Laura and I kind of ended up concluding on and agreeing on at the end of this. It's like, you have this whole set of circumstances, this stuff that you feel that you find something outside of you and it doesn't matter what the fuck it is. This happens to all human beings. All human beings use coping mechanisms. You meet the substance, the substance works on that set of circumstances. And for some of us, it's alcohol. And for some of us, it's pot. And for some of it's tobacco. And for some of us, it's gambling or whatever the hell it is. But it is true. Like when you meet that substance, like you like it and it works, then you continue on and you create more and more and more. And for some of us, it's just a different relationship. It doesn't mean like for me, it's way, way more pot over alcohol. That was so much fucking harder to break. But mm-hmm. at the same time, it doesn't doesn't negate the fact that I can't drink and that right. I had like a severe problem with it at the end. I mean, waking up in the morning and drinking is not it's just not it's not healthy. It's not it doesn't indicate lack of problem. I mean, but it also wasn't as severe as as you know, it is it. I mean, it wasn't even near the end of the spectrum. And so anyway, I guess. Yeah, I know. I think. Go ahead. The only other thing I was going to say is that, you know, my only issue with this idea of I was born an alcoholic. If we need to identify with that to get better, I think that makes sense. Uh, I think it kind of was harmful to me, though, personally, because when I had a friend go to AA and we were drinking together, we were serious drinking buddies, and she up and went to AA. And then I, I was really curious. I mean, nobody wants to have a drinking problem. So I sat down with her. I remember having this really long conversation with her about, um, you know, like trying to really ask questions and ask about myself. And I remember her telling me that she was different, that she was born that way, that, you know, it was something different inside of her. And, you know, I kept drinking for six years after that. And Mm -hmm. I could have saved myself a lot of pain because I was ready to ask the questions, you know, and I was already waking up at three in the morning, beating myself up for drinking too much. But I was like, well, I guess I'm not an alcoholic. And so, yeah, no, that I so, uh, I so, so see that. And I don't, for the record, I don't think I was born with alcohol. I don't even care if I was, I don't know if I was, I don't care if I was, I do know at some point I crossed some invisible line and this is probably the same thing you're saying with progression, right? I can trace it back to being 17, but at some point I progress, I, I crossed some invisible line where it was, I drank differently than mo- than even even in a room full of heavy drinkers. I I felt I drank differently, you know. And so I I think this is a really complicated and 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 be interesting to know why we attach to a certain storyline. Like I just need to know that I'm different because I can't fall into thinking that I can moderate or I don't even not you know at this point I don't want to, but I can't. The, the, the moment I start thinking that I, because I justified my drinking for a long time, right? Because I didn't, yeah, I answer, I could say I answered five of the 15 questions about alcoholism. But I, should I, I, like you said, I could have saved myself a lot of pain by quitting then. I had sufficient okay. reason. So I think, you know, people hold on to those stories for many reasons. I think any time I wrote a long piece when Holly did her articles about 
you know, um, sort of a uh, manifesto about, you know, AA and you're not being an alcoholic is was like the kickoff to that. I wrote one about why AA works for me. And one of those things about it was it, that I found when I read your stuff, I started getting defensive. And I think it's natural to get defensive about anything that is so Perfect. attached to your livelihood. Yeah. Right. And you so I think. I think these are the important, these are the conversations that we need to be having where it's about this and not about right, wrong way to do it. Are you doing sobriety correctly? If you're not in a, you're not really sober, you know, all that BS. Right. Um, well, I think it's important to say this, you know, most people like before it becomes full blown addiction, people struggle and a lot yes. of people struggle The continue, yes. like the amount of people that actually are actively addictive is so small in comparison to the number of people that actively abuse and that are forming a dependence on it. Mm-hmm. And I think that the most important thing that we do is we open up that. We open up that and yes. we say, you who are like waking up at 3 a.m. in the morning and regretting what you, and, and are in this like, I don't want to drink, I am drinking. You are the most, like you are deeply, deeply important to this picture and you get to look at it now. You get yes. to look at it now without taking on a label. You get to look at it without having to like admit to anything. You get to look at it simply because you have a problem with it. You don't have to be anything. You get to look at it as soon as you want to look at it. And I think that the system that we have in place at this point, I think it perpetuates so much. It, it perpetuates waiting, waiting until totally. it's so far gone that we look at it. We look at, it's just like saying, I, I reread that post I wrote last night. It's just like saying you wait and you get gastric bypass surgery. You wait until you, you are, you don't do the diet. You don't make the lifestyle modifications. You wait until you need the gastric bypass surgery or you don't like monitor your cholesterol. You wait until the heart attack. And that's what we do with alcohol. We wait until it's the end of the spectrum and we don't open it up to this broader set. And I think a lot of people, a lot of what keeps people from doing that is this idea that same conversation Annie just said that she had six years before she quit drinking. Okay, wait, 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 I'm not there. I don't need to do anything about it. Totally. No, yes. You're, You're so right. You're so spot on. I mean, I... I wish there were women, men, anybody talking about alcohol, alcohol, abuse, abuse, problems in the 20 years I drank. Nobody did, though. You know, it was, yeah. nobody did. And then you until were a drinker. It, I was a drinker <laughs> and everybody I knew was drinkers. And I didn't, you know, so I love everything about the conversation, even, you know, even though it does run contrary to things I've heard, but it's not, you know, I, I'm just, we're all figuring this out. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think this is like yeah. my favorite episode ever. I know. Oh, yes. Yes. Oh, so my goodness. <laughs> so good. So I feel like we need, it's an hour where I don't want <sighs> yeah, to go long. over, but is there it's anything, long. you know, that Annie, you want to say? We're going to have or... you back on again. Cause I feel like there's so much more stuff that I want to go over. Cause it, the, especially the stuff you were talking about in the beginning. And yeah, um, I think uh, anyway, but um, yeah, finish. Yeah, I'd love to be back on. No, it's <laughs> been, it's been a, such a pleasure. I, it's just awesome to talk to you girls. Well, thanks. Is there anything, anything else you want to clarify or say or add in? Because I feel like Laura and I talked way more than we should have in this episode. But <laughs> really, I feel like I talked a lot. <laughs> no, I think that I think what we're talking about is really important, and I think that the idea of providing a lifeline to people who are starting to question their their drinking, you know, is really important. And if if we can do that in some way, allow the questions 
to not have so much fear around them because of the term alcoholic and yeah. allow the questions to come out at a much earlier stage, you know, we can, we can prevent a lot of harm. And, and so I guess, I mean, the description of my book starts with millions of people are questioning their drinking, but are afraid to seek change. And I think that that's really what I want to do is provide kind of a lifeline. You know, I'm not trying to compete with AA by any stretch of the imagination, no intention of doing that. I just want to provide a lifeline for people who are starting to question it and maybe, you know, make some really good choices before it becomes a rock bottom experience, which um, there's, there's no good reason we have to have them. I mean, alcohol is addictive and we're drinking it in far too much, far too many quantities. I mean, it's just, it's becoming an epidemic in the States and, um, we just need to start to have this conversation in a, a really open way that we can start to just make questioning it. Okay. I think. Yeah. And talking about it. Like we've always said that, how awesome would it be if women or men or whoever, but you know, you, we'd sit there and talk about alcohol, like our relationship with alcohol, just like we do our regular relationships, just like we would our weights, just like we would our other issues that are on our mind. This is the last thing anyone will talk about. You know, it's, it's they don't so... want to talk about it. If you say, like we we've said this before, like if you you, it's so cool. It's fine for you to say, like, I need to stop eating pizza, or yeah. I need to lose five pounds, or I think I have a problem with sugar, or anything, or I'm watching too much Netflix, or we got, you know, we we're we're willing to admit, anything, or I or bigger, you know, never... or I have depression, right. or I, I, you know, I have a threatening mental illness. Like we, right. we'll talk about that. And I know a lot of people, self included, that would rather have been diagnosed with something like that. I would have rather mm-hmm. been diagnosed as having bipolar oh, than yeah. I would as having an addiction to alcohol That's or right. alcoholism. You I know? agree. I agree. I was relieved. I was relieved at first. I thought I had borderline personality disorder. That was okay. I could deal, yeah. I could deal with that. That I could deal I, with. Um, I don't want to give up my drinking. <laughs> but we don't, but no one will talk about, I feel like I'm drinking too much Chardonnay. No one will say it. They're terrified of saying it because it's that admission of it that puts you into another class. And that you're terrified of being, I think so much of it has to do with what it means if you actually admit that and what you have to do with it. And so what your life looks like after that, because we painted it into such, uh, nobody knows, you know, nobody knows what happens after that. You're the sober person. You're the teetotaler. You're the one that can't anymore. (laughs) You're the, you go to meetings for the rest of your life or whatever it is. We put so much baggage on what happens when you stop drinking. Yeah. And I'm sure, and just this last point, because as we were talking, as Annie was saying, her last thing, you know, so many women have come to me and I know Holly and I'm sure you and said, you know, I privately said, I, I'm so glad I read this or you're out there because I, I am worried about it. What does it mean if this is how I feel? Do I have to quit? Does it, you know, it looks like this, it looks like three glasses of wine a night, but I need those three glasses. Is that, does that mean I'm an alcoholic? Does that mean I have to, you know, and to be able to even bring to light those conversations without having to go to a meeting. Um, because like you said, I think I know uh, so many people won't for pride for who a million reasons. I get it. To be able to have that conversation is, is life-changing, you know, for a lot of people. I wish I could have had it. I wish there were people around me having it. Yeah. So, all right. Oh, this was so amazing. Annie, I know. Like Thanks your, for your- no, your book is just, I mean, I, I ate it up. It's, it's what I'm now recommending to like over, I, I still recommend easy way. Cause I think it's a great book. 
um, and Jason Vale's book, but your book is just so rich. It's got so much good research in it. It's pulled together just seamlessly. Um, and it's, it's spoken. And here's the most important part. All these dudes, all these dudes <laughs> wrote these books and it's so refreshing. It's based in the United States, which is huge, but it's also based from a woman's perspective and a woman's perspective who's, who fits our demographic, right? Um, Laura and, and you guys went to the same college. I mean, it's just, you know, it's crazy. Um, and so I just, I think it's, it's such a refreshing, it's such a refreshing take. You're so humble. And as as you were talking at the beginning, I mean, I thought you were really smart before. I was just blown away by your brilliance and pulling this all together. And so it's been a total honor to have you on and, um, we'll do it again. Well, thank you. It's been such an honor to be here. You guys, I really appreciate it. Yeah. Hi. 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 So, this is a